We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 58 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, May 7th, 2021. Big show, loaded show. I always try to make the Friday installments of the podcast jam-packed because it is the last pod of the week, although that wasn't the case last week with the two ultra-special, never-before-seen bonus pods for the Washington football team's 2021 draft, but we are back on our normal schedule this week. And so a special guest for you on this Friday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, Washington football team insider, JP Finley of NBC Sports Washington. We will cover a lot of ground regarding Washington's offseason, including why Washington did not take a quarterback 
in the 2021 draft. We will do the battle at quarterback as things stand. Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke versus Kyle Allen. I'll get into Washington potentially trading for Aaron Rodgers with JP. A lot of other non-quarterback topics too. Landon Collins, left tackle, the Brandon Sheriff contract situation. Like I said, a lot of ground will be covered in our conversation. Also, speaking of Washington not taking a quarterback in the 2021 draft, we will have our discussion on why that was. As a wise man once said, know your why. We will know our why when it came to why Washington did not take a quarterback in the 2021 draft. And also what that says to us. That's coming up in just a bit, as is some news that was announced by the Washington football team on Thursday. The team intends to welcome back fans to FedEx Field for the 2021 season at full capacity. Yes, full capacity. I love it. We'll talk about it in just a few minutes. Also on the show, I will talk Wizards and Nationals. Another wild game for the Wizards on Thursday night. Every game is bonkers for the Wiz these days. This time, though, it was a Wizards win, unlike what we had on Wednesday night, which was a loss at the Milwaukee Bucks. Thursday night, Wizards 131-129 overtime win over the Toronto Raptors in Tampa, Florida. I mean, just take a listen to some of these final scores of recent games for the Wizards. Every game is a high-scoring thriller. Working backwards, 131-129 overtime win over the Toronto Raptors in Tampa, Florida on Thursday night. 135-134 loss at the Milwaukee Bucks on Wednesday night. A 154-141 win over the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena on Monday night. A 125-124 loss at the Dallas Mavericks on Saturday night. You go back to two Mondays ago, you had a 146-143 overtime loss to the San Antonio Spurs at Capital One Arena. Every game is nuts these days for the Wizards, but more often than not, the Wizards are winning. Our Wizards are tough. Our Wizards are gritty. Who are these guys? 14 victories in 18 games. On the flip side, the Nationals swept in a three-game series against the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. The Nats offense is in a bad way, even though there's some bad luck involved, including a terrible called strike three on Victor Robles with runners on first and second, two outs, and the Nats trailing 3-2 in the bottom of the eighth. The pitch was nowhere near being a strike, and yet Robles got called out in a big spot in the game. We'll get to that a little bit later on. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com, including if you would like to get on board the express, the revolution that is the Al Galdi podcast as an advertiser. Let the power of the pod work for you. Again, that email address, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So how about what happened with our friends, our pals, our good chums, the New York Rangers on Thursday? (laughs) Yes, exactly. The NHL on Thursday announced that the league has fined the Rangers $250,000 for the comments that the team made about NHL Department of Player Safety Director George Peros. Remember, the -the over-the-top statement that the Rangers put out on Tuesday in reaction to the NHL fining but not suspending the Capitals' Tom Wilson for his actions in the Cap 6-3 win at the Rangers on Monday night. That statement included the following, quote, we view this as a dereliction of duty by NHL head of player safety, George Peros, and believe he is unfit to continue in his current role, end quote. So the Rangers called for George Peros's job. Not to say that George Peros is perfect at his job, but when do you ever see that? A team in a league publicly calling 
for a league executive's job, said NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman on Thursday in a statement, quote, public comments of the nature issued by the Rangers that were personal in nature and demeaning of a league executive will not be tolerated. While we don't expect our clubs to agree with every decision rendered by the Department of Player Safety, the extent to which the Rangers expressed their disagreement was unacceptable, end quote. But here's the kicker. So the NHL Department of Player Safety on Tuesday morning announced that Wilson had been fined $5,000, which is the maximum amount allowed by the collective bargaining agreement. So let's uh, do the accounting here, right? Wilson fined $5,000. The Rangers fined $250,000. So the Rangers, for complaining about Wilson's punishment, were fined 50 times as much as Wilson was fined for his actions that led to the punishment. (laughs) Yes, exactly. You talk about taking an L in a situation. The Rangers in this entire ordeal have taken the biggest of Ls. Take a step back for a moment and just absorb what the Rangers have had to endure over the last few days. Body blow by body blow. A, the Rangers were eliminated from postseason contention with that 6-3 home loss to the Caps on Monday night. B, Tom Wilson in his beatdown of Artemi Panarin gave Panarin a season-ending injury. C, the Rangers on Wednesday announced that team president John Davidson and general manager Jeff Gorton were leaving the organization, so a major front office shakeup for the Rangers. D, the Rangers lost at home to the Caps again, 4-2 loss on Wednesday night. E, yes, there's an E. The NHL on Thursday announced that the league had fined the Rangers $250,000 for the comments that the team made about George Peros. And then F, as we drill down deep to an F, know this, the NHL's Department of Player Safety suspended the Rangers' Pavel Buchnevich one game for high-sticking Anthony Mantha. Pavel Buchnevich, the same guy who got roughed up by Tom Wilson in the ordeal on Monday night. So Wilson doesn't get suspended. The Rangers get fined 50 times as much as Wilson gets fined. And one of the guys who Wilson attacked on Monday night ends up getting suspended for something that guy ends up doing on Wednesday night. <laughs> yes, it is It is unbelievable what has happened here. The extent to which the Rangers have had to swallow the L in this entire situation. The Rangers have gotten totally worked in all of this. Just like, just like one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland, works the DMV when it comes to real estate. John Grandland of Real Broker, John G. He's like the Bill Belichick of local real estate. John G is ahead of everyone else. He's next level. He has unique systems, a list of ready buyers, and the ultimate guarantee. John Grandland promises that if he can't sell your home at a price that you agree on, he will buy your home himself and he will back that up in writing. Also, John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from. You literally can choose your discount, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. Zero commission. I've been telling you about that. Some conditions do apply. Here's what James, who was having a hard time selling his condo, had to say about John Grandlin. Quote, my wife and I would highly recommend John for placing your home on the market. With our previous broker, we had our condo on the market for three months without an offer. In our second attempt to sell our home, we made a wiser decision and chose John. After about a week on the market, we already had two offers. He's a real pro and has a keen understanding of the business and the latest marketing techniques to get a property sold, 
end quote. Yes, again, he's the Belichick of local real estate. Find out what John Grandlin can do for you. You have nothing to lose. To learn more, to get the value of your home, visit johngselsforfree.com. That's johngselsforfree.com. Ask him about the zero commission. Or better yet, give John Grandlin a call now. Tell him that Al Galdi sent you and understand that you calling John Grandlin helps this podcast out greatly. The phone number, 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Grandland of Real Broker. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. It was many years ago that Vinny Serrato, in trying to be like Joe Gibbs and appeal to the fans, gave me a Vinny Serrato drop that I will forever cherish. For the fans. Yes, Vinny. For the fans. Not for the fans. For the fans. For the fans. Exactly, Vinny. Thank you. Well, we on Thursday had news for the fans of the Washington football team, and it was very good news. The Washington football team on Thursday announcing that the team intends to welcome back fans to FedEx Field for the 2021 season at full capacity. So none of this 10%, 20%, 50% stuff, full capacity, sellout crowds. Well, okay, it's FedEx Field. Who are we kidding? But full capacity, at the very least, will be allowed at FedEx Field. Great call. This is 100% the right call. The announcement was made with the NFL's release of the 2021 regular season schedule coming up next week. It's coming up on Wednesday, May 12th. Said the Washington football team in its statement in part, quote, the team will continue to deploy safety and public health measures at FedEx Field, building upon its successful approaches in 2020 and during recent events. Importantly, the team recognizes the incredible work and coordination area residents, public health officials, and elected leaders put forth to enable this moment more than a year removed from the enormous disruption and uncertainty brought on by the pandemic, end quote. So 100% capacity will be allowed at FedEx Field. Now, obviously, it's the kind of thing you can always change if need be, but the need should not be. We are coming out of the pandemic. We're not out of it yet, but things are so much better as compared to even just a few months ago. At least 149.5 million people in this country have received one or both doses of a COVID-19 vaccine. And I'm saying this on Friday, May 7th. Think about what that number will be come August when the preseason begins in September when the regular season begins. And I know that not everyone is getting vaccinated or wants to get vaccinated. I am personally getting vaccinated. I'm going for shot number two this Wednesday, the day of the release of the NFL's 2021 regular season schedule. I'm not going to do some preachy thing here and lecture you on why you have to get vaccinated. It's a personal choice. You can't force people to get vaccinated. But as you know, I'm a man of data and the data could not be clear that vaccines work, vaccines are safe, and specific to COVID-19, People getting vaccinated not only creates herd immunity, which of course reduces the spread, but maybe most importantly, people getting vaccinated creates herd immunity, which reduces the opportunity for the virus to mutate. And that, in a lot of ways, is the bigger concern right now, the mutations, the variants of the virus. But anyway, Washington football team planning for full crowds at FedEx Field. That is the way to go. Opening things up has not been what has led to increased spread of COVID-19. This is why I've been so hard on Mayor Bowser regarding D.C. being so slow to allow fans to attend Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards games. 
People insisting on a causal effect between opening things up and the spread of the virus have been looking at this all wrong. A lot of people slam states like Florida and Texas for opening up, and those states are doing well. You know, follow the science, follow the data. We've heard that a lot. Well, the data has said a lot of counterintuitive stuff with COVID-19. Opening things up doesn't automatically mean increased spread and more deaths. In fact, there's a case to be made that not opening things up leads to increased spread and more deaths because so much of the spread we now believe has happened in homes as opposed to at games, in restaurants, at gyms, at the beach, etc. Keep in mind, the NFL already has had a lot of fans at 10 games during the pandemic. 10 of the 13 games in the 2021 NFL playoffs had fans in attendance. We had 20,000 plus fans in attendance at Super Bowl 55 at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa on February 7th. There were just three games this past NFL postseason that did not have fans in attendance. And among those games, yes, was the Washington football team's loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wild card round. And looking back at that, you certainly can make the argument that Washington should have had fans at that game. Imagine what it would have been like in the stands that night with Taylor Heineke doing as he did. But I get it. You know, we were still in a precarious spot at that point with the virus. Better to be safe than sorry. If you're going to play it too much in one direction, obviously you're better off playing it too much in the direction of being conservative than in the direction of being uber aggressive. But again, there isn't any proof that opening things up has led to more spread, especially when it comes to people attending sporting events. I mean, the AFC Championship game, that Kansas City Chiefs win over the Buffalo Bills, that game had a paid attendance of 16,993 people at Arrowhead Stadium. Like, people went to games this past NFL postseason, and things ended up being just fine. Here's something to keep in mind, too, when it comes to the Washington football team and the COVID-19 pandemic. Washington, in so many ways, has been like a leader among NFL teams throughout the pandemic. So if you have any sort of reservation about Washington allowing for full capacity at games at FedEx Field this upcoming season, and to me, you shouldn't, but even if you do, understand like Washington has treated the pandemic very seriously and overall has done an outstanding job with the pandemic. You may recall this, but two marches ago, so March 2020, it was Dan Snyder and the Washington football team that led the way in terms of pulling scouts and coaches from the road. Dan Snyder put out a statement March 12, 2020, announcing that Washington had informed all of the team's scouts and coaches that they needed to return to their home bases and that travel was being suspended until further notice. Also on March 12, 2020, multiple reports that Washington was canceling its top 30 pre-draft visits to the team facility and that the team would be likely relying on phone calls and video calls for these visits. And there was actually a tweet that day from Mike Garofolo, NFL insider for NFL Network and NFL.com. He put out a tweet that day that included the following. How about this? Quote, Snyder and the Skins among the more active teams on this front right now. End quote. We also, in March 2020, had a report from NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com based on a letter that he had obtained. The letter was from Dr. Anthony Casalero, who is the president of the NFL Physician Society and the co-head physician for the Washington football team. The letter was sent to the NFL and NFL Players Association announcing that free agents and draft prospects would not be examined until the COVID-19 pandemic had passed. And then we had what happened with Washington during the regular season. The Washington football team putting an NFL low two players on a COVID-19 list, and neither guy was on the team's active roster at the time of his placement. The two players were defensive lineman Matt Ioannidis, who was on the reserve slash injured list, 
at the time of his placement and running back Devon Leak, who was on Washington's practice squad at the time of his placement. So Washington has earned a benefit of the doubt, very much so, when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic and taking it seriously and doing a good job with it. As I pointed out, I think this area as a whole has done a good job with the pandemic. People in this area should be trusted to continue to do a good job with the pandemic. And again, we are coming out of it. We're not there yet, but we're getting, as a certain someone once said, close. It means you're close. That's exactly, Brucey. We are close to getting out of it. Hey, maybe Brucifer will be among those at FedEx Field this upcoming season. Yeah, maybe not. All right, so I have been promising you a conversation on the podcast this week regarding the Washington football team not taking a quarterback in the 2021 NFL Draft. It is Friday, so if I don't do it on this show, then I will have not delivered on my promise. Let it never be said that the Al Galdi podcast does not deliver on its promises. So let's go ahead and have the conversation here right now. So yeah, Washington ended up off all of the talk for months of Does Washington like this guy? Does Washington like that guy? Should Washington take this guy? Maybe Washington will take that guy. Of all that, not taking a quarterback in the 2021 NFL draft. Despite indications from a number of people in the D.C. market that Washington liked Ohio State quarterback Justin Fields, the team did not trade up to take him, even with him falling in the first round, right? Washington had the number 19 pick in the first round. The Chicago Bears had the number 20 pick in the first round. The Bears traded up to number 11 and took fields, and the price that the Bears paid to do this was significant, but certainly not unreasonable. The Bears traded their 2021 first-round pick, number 20 overall, a 2021 fifth-round pick, a 2022 first-round pick, and a 2022 fourth-round pick for the New York Giants' 2021 first-round pick, number 11 overall. So Chicago dealt two ones, a four, and a five to get the Giants' one to take fields. All things considered, That's not that much to give up to get a guy who you believe will be your franchise quarterback. Now, there had been quite a bit out there that the guy who Washington liked was Fields. Uh, Kevin Sheehan had that. J.P. Finley had that. John Keim had that. Ben Standig had that. I'm not saying they're wrong, but I think it's pretty clear now what the nature of that like from Washington was. It was a like. It was not a love. Washington, which had the number 19 pick in the first round, did not trade up to take Alabama quarterback Mac Jones. New England Patriots took Jones with the number 15 pick. You know, Jones had never really been tied to Washington that much, but that is worth noting. Mac Jones conceivably could have been traded up for. Washington didn't do that. Washington did not take any of the second-tier quarterbacks available in the 2021 draft. Washington had the number 51 pick in the second round. Florida quarterback Kyle Trask, Texas A&M quarterback Kellen Mond, Stanford quarterback Davis Mills, all were available at number 51. Washington did not take any of those guys, right? Use that number 51 overall pick on the Texas offensive tackle, Samuel Cosme. Trask went to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with the final pick in the second round, number 64 overall. The Minnesota Vikings took Mond in the third round at number 66 overall. The Houston Texans took Davis Mills in the third round, number 67 overall. It was interesting. We did have a run of the second tier quarterbacks, those three guys going over the course of four picks. Now, Did Washington only like the quarterbacks who went in the top three of the 2021 draft? First three picks, right, were quarterbacks. Clemson's Trevor Lawrence to the Jacksonville Jaguars at one. BYU Zach Wilson to the New York Jets at two. North Dakota State's Trey Lance to the San Francisco 49ers at three. Remember, former NFL executive Michael Lombardi in an installment of his podcast, The GM Shuffle, 
that dropped on April 7th said, quote, I think Washington is going to be the next team to unload all their picks to try to get a quarterback. Hmm, so much for that. Anyway, Lombardi said, I think they love Lance. I don't think, I know Washington loves Lance. And quote, well, Washington may have loved Lance, but Washington never truly had a shot at Lance because not only was Lance not available anywhere near to number 19, but Washington wasn't trading up into the top three because the top three picks seemingly were set in stone and that these teams weren't interested in moving. Like San Francisco wasn't going to trade for number three overall and then trade back. Like, no, Jacksonville was not going to trade at a number one. Jaguars wanted Lawrence and the Jets very clearly wanted Zach Wilson off trading away Sam Darnold. So why didn't Washington take a quarterback in the 2021 draft. This is not something we should just gloss over. We spent a lot of time talking about this. It matters here. What happened here? Why did what happen happen here? Why didn't Washington take a quarterback in the 2021 draft? And the reason that's most obvious to me, and I'm guessing to many of you, is that Washington didn't truly love any of the quarterbacks who were realistically available to the team in the 2021 draft. So we're taking Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, and Trey Lance off the table because those three went one, two, three and ended up not being options for Washington. Washington presumably loved Lawrence like everybody else, perhaps even loved both Wilson and Lance. We'll probably never know the truth on that. But Washington obviously did not love Justin Fields or Mac Jones enough to trade up to take either one, even though the cost for doing so wouldn't have been that extreme, relatively speaking. There's a big difference, right, between liking a quarterback and loving a quarterback. It's one thing to be intrigued by a quarterback or to even be a big fan of certain things about a quarterback. That's why that stuff that was out there about Washington liking Fields, I'm not saying that that stuff was wrong, but it only goes so far. Like, well, they like Fields. Well, yeah, but do they love him? You know, of course you're going to like things about Justin Fields. You'd have to have your head buried in the sand not to like at least some things about Justin Fields. But that's not the issue. The issue is, do you love Justin Fields? Are you willing to give up what you need to give up to trade up to take Justin Fields? And the answer for Washington was no. You can like someone. It's another thing to truly believe that that someone will be a franchise quarterback. Now, did you see what ESPN Washington football team insider John Keim in an article that came out on Wednesday reported? Kime reported that, quote, there was no true consensus in Washington on which quarterback to draft. Some of the organization favored Ohio State's Justin Fields. Others, like North Dakota State's Trey Lance, and another group wanted Alabama's Mac Jones. Without a consensus, the team wasn't going to surrender draft capital to move up for any of them. However, if one had fallen to Washington at number 19, the team likely would have pounced, end quote. That nugget from Kime would explain why we had Washington tied to both Fields and Lance and why it was kind of a dual thing going on where some were saying Washington really liked Lance and then others said, well, no, Washington really likes Fields. And you're like, well, they can't both be true. Well, they kind of sort of were. Some like Lance, some like Fields. Kime later in the article wrote, quote, Washington did like quarterbacks Davis Mills, Stanford, and Kyle Trask, Florida. But early in the process, one source said the team would consider Trask in the third round rather than drafting one too high. It opted for Texas offensive tackle Samuel Cosme with the number 51 pick in round two. By the time Washington selected in the third round, both quarterbacks were gone. The team knew that likely would be the case, end quote. So that clearly communicates Washington did not love Davis Mills, did not love Kyle Trask. You figured each guy was like a third round value. You didn't trade back to take the guy. You didn't just say, hey, we like him. Let's just take him in the second round. You said, no, we're going to take Cosme in the second round. And probably both Mills and Trask will be gone 
by the time the first of our two third round picks comes up. But that's okay. That's that's the definition of not loving someone. That's the definition of liking someone, but not lusting after that someone to be your franchise quarterback. All of this reeks of that same theme, not truly loving any one quarterback in the 2021 NFL draft. Now, you have to attach a caveat to all this, and that is, you better be right. Because if Justin Fields ends up being outstanding for the Chicago Bears for years to come, if Justin Fields ends up being a franchise quarterback for the Chicago Bears for years to come, and you could have traded up to take him and you didn't, well, that's a major stain on you. But you got to trust your instincts. You got to trust your evaluations. And when it comes to first round quarterbacks, if you don't love a quarterback in a first round of an NFL draft, then you should not give up what's necessary to trade up to take that quarterback in that NFL draft. By my count, and we did this exercise on the podcast a few weeks ago, as of the start of this 2021 draft, the hit rate on first round quarterbacks for the previous 11 NFL drafts, so 2010 through 2020, was 11 out of 34. I had out of the 34 quarterbacks taken in first rounds of NFL drafts from 2010 through 2020, 11 hits, 18 misses, and five who had been mixed or for whom it was too early to tell. 11 out of 34, less than one out of three. That is brutal. Now, specific to Fields and trading up to take him, I suppose that you could say that the New York Giants, who dealt their number 11 overall pick to the Chicago Bears, who then took Fields, may have been unwilling to do a trade with an NFC East rival in Washington that landed Washington a potential franchise quarterback. You could say that. I don't know that you're wrong in saying that. But, but remember, we in the first round of the 2021 draft did have an intra-division trade in the NFC East. The Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles, right, made that trade that allowed the Eagles to take the Alabama receiver, Devontae Smith, with the number 10 overall pick. So if the Eagles and Cowboys could do a trade for a top 10 pick, why couldn't Washington and the Giants do a trade for a number 11 pick? Now, I know it's a little different. That would be for a quarterback. The Eagles-Cowboys trade netted Philadelphia a receiver, but still, I think that is worth keeping in the back of your mind. Now, here was Ron Rivera at his and Martin Mayhew's Zoom press conference that followed the first round of the NFL draft two Thursday nights ago on why Washington did not trade up to take a quarterback in the first round. Well, we just felt looking at where we are right now with what we're doing, uh, to be patient, to sit and wait and see what happens, uh, we felt strong about it. We really did. You know, this isn't just about trying to, 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 you know, put a piece. We have a chance to put pieces into place. And so we felt that's probably a better direction. At least I believe that's a better direction for us right now. So you could interpret what Ron said there in many ways. I think what he said spoke to one, Washington, again, not truly loving any of the quarterbacks who were realistically available to the team in the 2021 draft. And two, Ron believing that Washington potentially has something in the three most significant quarterbacks on the team right now, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke, and Kyle Allen. Remember, Stephen Montez is also on Washington as well. What I really hope Ron was not indicating with what he said there is that now is not the, quote, right time for Washington to take a potential franchise quarterback. And I don't think that's what Ron was saying, but I think it is important to address this because I have heard people say this, right? This idea of like, well, build up the rest of the team and then get your franchise quarterback. Here's the deal. You don't schedule when you get a franchise quarterback. You pounce when the opportunity presents itself, whenever that is, and no matter who you have on your roster. If a quarterback who you truly believe will be a franchise quarterback for you is available to you, 
and you don't already have a franchise quarterback, then you do whatever is necessary to get that franchise quarterback. The idea, which again, some Washington fans have put forth of building up the rest of the team and then getting the franchise quarterback. That to me is ridiculous. I don't subscribe to that. You don't just all of a sudden decide when to get a franchise quarterback. Franchise quarterbacks are few and far between, and you never know when the next opportunity to get one will come up. It would be lovely if there was a franchise quarterback store that you could go to, or better yet, order online from, and just get your franchise quarterback that way. It doesn't work that way, all right? Amazon does not have a section on franchise quarterbacks. Maybe Bezos is going to come up with one, but for now, we don't have one of those. So you have to see when the opportunity arises, and when it does, you got to pounce, okay? And you got to be aggressive, and you got to get that guy by whatever means are necessary. That's why, when it comes to Aaron Rodgers, I do say, if in fact he's on board with coming here, if in fact you feel like he's going to behave himself here, and if in fact contractually you negotiate whatever needs to be negotiated, yes, get him. He's a franchise quarterback. The aging curve for quarterbacks is being totally altered with what guys are doing deep in their 30s, if not 40s. But you pounce because you don't know when the next time someone like an Aaron Rodgers might be available to you, if he's available to you. We don't know that he is available at this time. And to that point, I do want to address this because there is another thing to consider when it comes to getting your franchise quarterback. For years, the way to get your franchise quarterback has been via the draft. I mean, occasionally you can get a guy via trade, but by and large, you have to draft your franchise quarterbacks. Well, we've had a very interesting phenomenon develop over the last two NFL offseasons, and that is the prevalence of veteran quarterbacks who have become available via trade and free agency. This has really been interesting to me. We're in the midst of a second consecutive offseason in which we have had a number of veteran quarterbacks available via trade and free agency. So much so now that the idea of not having to have a top five or even top 10 pick in a first round of a draft to get a franchise quarterback isn't far-fetched. I mean, consider the list. Veteran quarterbacks available via free agency and trade last offseason included Tom Brady, Philip Rivers, Cam Newton, Andy Dalton, okay? And they're not all stud franchise quarterbacks, but those are some pretty heavy veteran names that were available last offseason. Veteran quarterbacks available via free agency and trade this offseason have been Matthew Stafford, Jared Goff, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Cam Newton, Andy Dalton, Mitchell Trubisky, Sam Darnold, to say nothing of these disgruntled franchise quarterbacks like Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson. And of course, this doesn't mean that Rodgers, Watson, and Wilson all will be traded. But doesn't it stand out now how many veteran quarterbacks are, if not being made available each offseason, at least are coming up for potential availability each of these last two offseasons? This is a new trend. And maybe it ends up being nothing more than a flash in the pan, but maybe not. You know, maybe this is a paradigm shift. This phenomenon of veteran quarterbacks, in some cases very good ones, being available via free agency and trade every offseason, especially when you factor in the disgruntled guys, Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson, three high-level top 10 quarterbacks, at least two of the three, and Rodgers and Watson wanting out this offseason. We'll see if either guy gets his way. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. And now for much more on the Washington football team at quarterback and elsewhere. 
So we have shifted into a different phase of the NFL offseason now that the NFL draft is over. Free agency does continue. We're long since past the first wave of free agency. You could even say that we're past the second wave of free agency. Maybe we're in the third wave. I'm not sure how you demarcate the waves. But anyway, plenty of guys do remain out there. And to that end, we on Thursday had multiple reports of some visits coming up for the Washington football team. Left tackle Charles Leno Jr., who was released by the Chicago Bears due to visit Washington on Monday. Safety Bobby McCain released by the Miami Dolphins due to visit Washington on Monday. So there's what Washington could do this offseason, and there's what Washington has done this offseason. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Washington football team insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington, the host of the Washington Football Talk podcast, also the co-host of B. Mitch and Finley on 106.7 A Fan. J.P., my friend, how are you? I'm doing well, Goldie. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate you coming on. So we are about a week removed from the draft. Uh, Washington did a lot. Did not, though, as you know, draft a quarterback, including not trading up for Justin Fields despite him falling. Ultimately, why didn't Washington draft a quarterback, in your opinion? I don't think they were ever going to, man. Um, I think, how many times have Ron Rivera and Martin Mayhew said that they're comfortable with the quarterbacks on the roster? I think they mean it. Like, I, I think, I think Scott Turner's legit excited to work with Fitz. And I think, I mean, we've all kind of forgotten about Kyle Allen. Kyle Allen has started 17 games for Ron Rivera. They're comfortable with him. And Heineke certainly proved an intriguing option in that wild card game. I think they want to continue to just build up this team, build up all of the parts. And maybe next year, if this defense is as good as some think it might be, then you try to drop in a stud veteran quarterback. I, I don't think, unless Justin Fields fell to 19, I don't think they were drafting a quarterback. Yeah, so they liked Fields, but they didn't love him. Otherwise, they would have traded up to take him. Agreed. Yeah. When it comes to the quarterbacks who Washington does have, Ryan Fitzpatrick certainly is the favorite to begin the season as the starter. Ron Rivera said that Ryan goes into the offseason practices as the starter, but also has said that there will be competition. Do you buy that, that there is an at least somewhat realistic path for Taylor Heineke or Kyle Allen to win the starting quarterback job, or is the fix basically in for Fitzpatrick to be the week one starter? I think Fitz could lose the job, but it's his job to lose. I, I, I think there will be preseason, so I think Heineke and Allen will get a, a good chance to play. I also think watching those guys, at least I watched a full training camp of Kyle Allen now. He's not a practice player because his style is so borderline reckless that that doesn't show up in practice, right? Like he's not going to dive for first downs in practice. All the kinds of things that I think this staff loves so much about him that won't show up in practice. So I, I think barring a terrible performance from Fitzpatrick in the preseason. And he's probably, how much is Fitz going to play in the preseason? Maybe the second half of that third game? I, you know, and uh, I bet he plays less than a full game of football in the preseason. It's only three preseason games. Maybe he only plays a half. I just think it's Fitz's job. He would have to be really, really bad to, to lose it. So certainly the way it seems to be is that Kyle Allen is Ron Rivera's guy. Taylor Heineke is Scott Turner's guy. 
Do you think that Ron thinks that Kyle and that Scott thinks that Taylor can actually be something? Or do you think they just happen to like those guys? Like, obviously, there's a difference between, you know, you like someone versus you really think that that someone could be a something at quarterback. Do you think Ron really believes that Kyle Allen could be something? Scott really believes that Taylor Heineke could be something. I think if you put truth serum into both of those dudes, they think they, they're really good backup quarterbacks. I don't think either of them think those are the guys that are going to win them playoff games and Super Bowls and stuff. Yeah. Okay. They're good competitors, but I, I don't think, I mean, what do we know? They tried like hell to trade for Matt Stafford. They know what a good quarterback looks like, and they're willing to go after that. So speaking of going after that, perfect segue, uh, you and I are on the same page when it comes to Aaron Rodgers. Washington should do whatever it can to get him, assuming that Rodgers wants to come here and assuming that Washington can negotiate whatever needs to be negotiated contractually. Of course, Green Bay may never trade Rodgers. That said, if Rodgers is or becomes available via trade, do you think that Ron is truly interested and takes the big swing, or does Ron prefer to stay the course, keep his assets, and not even try to trade for Aaron Rodgers? I think they're willing to make big swings. I don't know that it happens with Rodgers, but they tried to make a big swing with Stafford. So there's there's evidence to support the theory that they're willing to take big swings. Um, Rodgers is a unique situation because does he? With everything that we're hearing from Green Bay, and, and just kind of, we only know it peripherally, but is he a perfect culture guy? Right? Like, is he, is he that leader, cultural fit they want at that position? I, I, I'm not saying he isn't, but you can make a case that he might not be. And then, if you trade for Rodgers, the pressure changes dramatically both in the price you'd have to pay and, hell, Aaron Rodgers is on the team. Of course you're a Super Bowl contender. And and is that where this team is? I I don't know. I think he makes them a Super Bowl contender if he comes here. For sure. It's interesting because it's Aaron Rodgers, but, like, for all the years of us saying, like, build it the right way, don't let Dan Snyder do crazy things, like, wouldn't the Rodgers trade be exactly that? Well, potentially, the thing about Rodgers is he's not just elite. He's like all-time elite. The quarterback aging curve is changing, right? I mean, we're seeing guys late yeah. 30s, early 40s do well. And he would elevate you in a way that few can. I mean, this isn't trading a bunch of picks for an unknown that you're taking in a first round. It's trading a bunch of picks for a guy who was, you know, the MVP of the league last year. I, I think what you say about the culture is interesting, though, because, yeah, like he does come off, Rodgers does, as like surly. He does seem to have problems with a lot of different people. And while I don't get some of what Green Bay has done, like trading up to take Jordan Love when Rodgers seemingly still has many good seasons left, I think there is an argument to be made for Rodgers himself is at fault with some of this stuff. I mean, this idea that the Packers have not surrounded Rodgers with good skill position players is wrong. Green Bay has a number of good skill position players. Well, and it's Ron's show completely in Washington, right? Yeah. I, I think even with everything going on with Dan, like, hey, Ron is in charge. You bring Aaron Rodgers in, I don't know that it's – I think that starts changing a little bit too. Like, Rodgers is going to have a lot of sway. I don't I, – I, listen, if you can get him, get him. It, it'd be in 
him throw the football wearing burgundy and gold. But I, I just, I don't see it happening. I don't see it happening, and I, I wonder, I don't know. It's a really interesting hypothetical. I've also heard from multiple people that Rodgers only wants to go out west. To that point, do you know if Ron and Aaron have a relationship, given that each guy went to Cal? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they know each other in some capacity, just from, like, charity golf tournaments or whatever. But I have no idea, you know, if there's a a real friendship, relationship, any of that. Yeah, okay. Uh, getting away from quarterback, the Landon Collins situation. I know that Jack Del Rio told Julie Donaldson that Landon's staying at strong safety. My theory is that the team is going to say that Landon's still a strong safety and maybe have him do some of that, but also is going to use him in a linebacker-like way. And actually, if you watch the whole interview, Jack actually sort of says that later in the conversation with Julie. I just don't see how Cameron Curl is not out there a ton. What do you think happens ultimately with Landon Collins? Curl's playing. I think... I think that some of this stuff is, is, is kind of going a direction that the team and, and Del Rio probably didn't intend it to be. Like, what's he supposed to say? He's not going to tell the guy that's rehabbing he's going to be a linebacker all of a sudden. And there's not going to be, like, a formal position switch. Like, they're not going to change on the roster. It's not going to say LB next to Landon Collins' name. I think you're right. I think they'll try to be more creative in roles they use them in. Um, but I also think this is this is the last of the yacht picks until the next one. Like Dan and Bruce wanted Landon Collins. Dan gave him the Sean Taylor jersey. Like this is the last hurrah of that era, I would say. And I think a year from now, when the contract opens up, I wouldn't be shocked if Collins is gone. I, I just think they're. All parties are going to say what they have to say and get through the season and hope Landon plays well. And, but I, I think we're spending too much time on it. Like, oh, is he going to switch positions? He's not going to switch positions. It's, I mean, he's been a safety for 25 years. He's not a linebacker now. There's reports that he like dropped weight. Like, that's not going to help him play linebacker. Yeah. Yeah. Jack said he told him to lose weight. So. Yeah, I mean, the thing in football we know now, too, is you can call a guy whatever you want in terms of his position, but especially on defense, once you get beyond the defensive line, guys play all over the place. Like, corners play totally. safety, linebackers play safety. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's such a mix. It's it's what Ron says all the time, position flex. Like, guys are doing a ton of things these days. So call him what you want to, but what his label is and how he's actually utilized can be two different things. Right, and to, and to that point, when they're in their base 4-3, which is 35% of the time, Landon Collins is not going to be out there as one of those three linebackers. Right. Like, and then when you go to the nickel and these other sub-packages, dudes are used in a variety of different roles. So could Collins in that situation not be lined up as a strong safety? Certainly. But that doesn't make him a linebacker. Right. Like we're getting – I think – People are getting overly caught up in, like, the position titles with some of this. Ryan Kerrigan, are you surprised that he remains unsigned, that the market for him apparently has been as cold as it's been? Um, if it wasn't a decreased salary cap here, yes, I would be surprised. But I think, all things considered, it's not that surprising. I mean... 
Richard Sherman's still out there. I, I, what's the Seahawks linebacker? Uh, KJ Wright. Like there are plenty of guys still out there that I think some of it with those veterans. Like we saw Villanueva sign the other day. I think some teams are starting to get way more cognizant of the compensatory pick formula and waiting until free agent signings no longer count. Um, you've also got to squeeze salary cap, but I think Kerrigan, I still kind of think he lands with Green Bay. Um, but I think Kerrigan will land with one of these teams that have a former, you know, Shanahan era Washington football team connection, um, wherever that might be. And that, 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 that room is expanding with the amount of, like, what if, I mean, this is total conjecture, right? But say the Jets want to bring in a veteran and the solid calls Kyle, Kyle will be like, yeah, RK is one of the best dudes you can bring in there. Right? So it, there's, I, I think, I don't think he's worried about it at this point. Okay. Would be my guess. Do you think there's any chance he resigns with Washington or that ship has sailed? I don't know that it's sailed. I don't know that it's likely, but I do think he would like to play his whole career here. And if there's a realistic option for it, um, but I also wonder, he wants to play more. I think, I, I think he still thinks he's a double digit sack guy. He knows he's not going to get that opportunity here. Um, so I, I think he might want an opportunity that gives him more football. The offensive line, who do you think ultimately is Washington's starting left tackle in week one? As things stand now, assuming everyone's healthy through camp, who do you think emerges as the LT1 for week one? LT1 for week one. I kind of think it might be Cornelius Lucas still. Yeah. Now, if you ask me week eight or week ten, I might feel differently, but I think he played fine last year and I think coming out of the Big 12 which is kind of defense optional um, I think there's going to be a bit of a learning curve for Cosby I, I think he's got all the tools but I think there's going to be a learning curve there yeah that makes sense you know I was thinking about this with Washington's offensive line Washington seemingly and you know we'll see how things play out but has a depth along the offensive line that the team has not had in forever. Like, you could argue Washington goes three deep at some spots. Like, you think about left guard. You have Eric Flowers. You have Wes Schweitzer. You have Sadiq Charles, in theory, if he stays a guard. Three deep at one spot like that, left guard. You almost never have that. On the line? Yeah. Specifically? Yeah. I mean, the Flowers trade really gives them some flexibility. Um, and I think it gives them some insurance kind of if, when, Sheriff leave ne- leaves next year. And I think that is uh, some really good options for him. Um, if I had to guess, my week one starting lineup would go Lucas, Flowers, Rouillet, Sheriff, Moses. You mentioned Sheriff. I mean, personally, I have, like, zero faith they're going to get a long-term deal done. The back-to-back franchise tags thing, I mean, it's Kirk all over again. He has no incentive to sign a long-term deal. Do you think there's a realistic chance they do get a deal done, or do you think that this is going to play out just like the Kirk thing did and Sheriff's going to play a second straight year under the tag and then walk at the end of that season? I do. I think think that's where it's going. I kind of think there's a growing mindset in the NFL where, like, 
teams are okay with that from first rounders where they're like, all right, we got seven years. You know, you get seven years out of your first rounder. That's good, but maybe not all world. And then you get a third round. Typically you would get a third round compensatory on the back end. And, and if you average out the years, if you averaged out seven years where the first four are on a rookie deal, and then so it's just those last three where you're paying, you know, kind of top of market. I think a lot, like, like, when Brand Sheriff was about to get drafted, go back to 2015, if you could have gotten him seven years, what does that average out to? Probably 13 mil a season. I think, I, I think every Washington football fan would have signed up for that. It's not to say you want to lose him. But you get seven years and you get the third. I, I think it. If I was sheriff, knowing the cap is down and is about to go pop up next year, I, I wouldn't sign anything. I mean, from a club perspective, I think that's what people have a problem with. That. So first of all, there's no guarantee they get the third because if they sign someone for a big money deal next off season, then that's going to cancel sure. out sheriff what he of gets. Course. And of course, you're overpaying. I mean, you're giving him $33 million for two years when it's like, you know, that's, that's exorbitant for, you know, as, as Jay Gruden once said, a guard. Like, that, yeah, but he's not going to sign for less than that. You're not going to, there's not a deal out there where he's making less than 16 now. No, I know. So, that, I mean, that, that to me, that's why you trade him. And I know they're not going to do that, but. That, to me, was the play here. If you really don't think you're going to get a long-term deal done, it's not worth it for one more year to have him, especially when he's hurt every year. He misses, like, you know, I don't know, three to six games every year. Well, that's the one reason why maybe you would, if you were sheriff, look to get a long-term deal done, is you're healthy right now and you can lock that in. Yeah. But I, I think there's some, I think there's a misconception about the NFL trade market, and that's not to say that people don't get traded, but what is... Trent Williams. Trent Williams got traded for a third and a fifth. So what is Sheriff's contract value? What is, well, I'm sorry, what is his trade value? At some point, having Brandon Sheriff, even if it's only for a year, hell, even if it's only for 12 games, to your point, has more value than an extra fourth-round pick. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think you could get more than a fourth-round pick for him on the trade market. The trade market in the NFL is so random. Laramie Tunsil goes for what he goes for, and Trent goes for what he goes for. And the Trent thing was different because Washington kind of had to get pennies on the dollar for him because of what Bruce did. But yeah, it, it, we don't know. Like, maybe Sheriff would go for a fourth. Maybe you could get a first-rounder for him if a team was desperate enough for a guard. Like, you just, you have no idea with that. I, I just, I don't know. It's just, it's funny to me because everyone looking back on the Kirk thing sees where Washington went wrong, regardless of how you feel about him. It's like, the back-to-back franchise tag thing gave the player all the leverage and you ended up getting so little for him in terms of what you could have gotten for him. And it's like, it's happening again in a, in a different way. It's not as contentious. It's, it's, you know, it's not as big of a deal, but it just, it, it cracks me up. Like the, the one team that should have avoided doing this because the, the team went through this a few years ago and like the same thing is happening again with another player. Yeah, that's fair. I just think it's so different with a quarterback. Yeah. There's not enough of them. And, and are there, there's not enough all pro guards either. I'm not trying to diminish Brandon's value, but the position and his injury history. When, when would you have wanted them to trade him? When would I have wanted Washington to trade Sheriff this offseason? 
when you were confronted with having to franchise tag him for a second consecutive offseason and you felt like, okay, here we go again. He's going to sign a tender. He's not going to be really that interested in signing a long-term contract. This offseason was the time. And we have seen a good number of guys tagged and traded in recent years. I would think Washington could have done something. I don't think Washington wants to do something. I think Washington wants to keep Brandon Sheriff. Washington values him as a culture guy. He is a good guard. Nobody's saying that he isn't. And I think they probably see it as you described it. Hey, for one more year of them, we'll go ahead and pay it. I mean, they have the cap space. It's not like they can't afford this. So they'll go ahead and do that. Yeah. I, I mean, you're saying to go ahead and keep them? Yeah. Um, that's my thing. I think, like, they're – I think they think they could win the division again. And I think Sheriff helps you do that. I don't think that's incorrect. I think Washington should be very much in a mix for the NFC East in 2021. Al, are the Orioles any good? Who's this dude that just threw a no-hitter? What's going on up there? Yeah, John Means. Well, are they good? No. Are they playing above what they should be playing? Yes. So it's been nice to see. Could they be good? Um, I don't think so. Not over 162. If it was another shortened season, maybe. I think they're going to end up getting exposed, but... They are interesting, and they have some good, fun players. Like, I think the rebuild is going in the right direction. Could they be good next year or, like, two years? I think two years, 2023. Maybe, maybe 2022, but more realistically, 2023 is the target year. Converted to full fe- full-fledged them, but I still love the O's. Ah, so you made the switch. You converted. I made the turn. But, I mean, I still love – I don't know. I'm going to try to go to Baltimore next month um, for a game. Uh, it's Cam Yard's best best place in the majors. It is outstanding. It is great. Easy to get to, too, which is nice. I think the Nats are trending the wrong way, dude. I think the Nats have real problems. Um, I was concerned about them going into this season. They're older. They're not very deep. They've got issues in basically every spot. They could end up doing well this year, but no one should be shocked if they don't. Yeah, To me, they're like an 82-win team. They're like right in that middle ground area. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I agree. So we'll see. All right, man. Appreciate you coming on so much. All the best to you. No problem. All right, so I said on Thursday's podcast that the Wizards are becoming such a likable team, and it's so true, and the likability factor went up even more on Thursday night. A 131-129 overtime win over the Toronto Raptors in Tampa, Florida. Remember, the Raptors are playing their home games this season in Tampa. There was so much to be proud of from a wizard standpoint with this victory. I'll get to all that in just a bit. Know this, the Indiana Pacers did win on Thursday night as well, a 133-126 victory over the Atlanta Hawks, but the Charlotte Hornets lost at home to the Chicago Bulls 120-99. So the Wizards still are 10th in the Eastern Conference, now just a half game behind the Indiana Pacers for ninth, game and a half behind the Hornets for 8th, and four and a half games behind the Heat for 7th. Remember, of course, play-in tournament is coming for each conference, seeds 7 through 10 in each conference. The Wizards at this point are basically a lock to be in the play-in tournament. Having clinched that just yet, but are getting awfully close. The question has become, can the Wizards finish ninth, maybe even 8th in the conference, or is it going to end up being the Wizards in that number 10 spot? But here you have the Wizards playing on Thursday night. Second game of a back-to-back that started with that 135-134 loss at the Milwaukee Bucks on Wednesday night. So the Wizards went from playing in Milwaukee on Wednesday night, flying to Florida 
and having to play the Raptors in Tampa on Thursday night. That's not easy to do, and yet the Wizards were able to at least go one and one in that stretch, win the second game of the back-to-back, and a second game that went to overtime. This is a depleted Wizards team. Rui Hachimura did not play for a second consecutive game due to an illness that is not COVID-19. Wizards, of course, have long since been without Denny Avdia, done for the season, right ankle fracture, Thomas Bryant, partial tear of his left ACL. Wizards, to me, deserve a lot of credit for pulling off this victory. You talk about, you know, fighting your guts out, as Joe Gibbs used to say. This was kind of one of those games for the Wizards. They were down by 13 in the third quarter, rallied, did give up a Fred Van Vliet three, a game-tying 27-foot left wing three with 1.3 seconds left in the fourth quarter, but the Wizards ended up winning the overtime 16-14. This was a classic kind of grinded out win. It was interesting. We did have the opposite of what we've had for so much lately. Wizards were good on threes, not so good on twos. The exact opposite had been the case lately. Bad on threes, good on twos. Wizards 13-30 from beyond the arc in the game on Thursday night. Wizards really won the game at the free throw line too. Wizards went 36-43 of on free throws. Raptors 21 of 27 on free throws. So the Wizards scored 15 more points on free throws on 16 more attempts on free throws as compared to the Raptors. I mentioned this being a grinded out kind of win. This was certainly the case for Bradley Beal. So Beal finished with good numbers, made his lone three-point shot, went 10 of 21 on twos, finished with 28 points, five assists versus one turnover and five rebounds. And those numbers are especially impressive when you consider what the Raptors did to Beal on Thursday night, and that is harass him, molest him, put hands on him. The Raptors head coach, Nick Nurse, is known for liking to muck things up. The Raptors muck things up with Bradley Beal, made usage of a box-in-one approach, and Beal was harassed for a good bit of the night. But like I said, he ended up finishing with numbers and he ended up doing a good job. I give Bradley Beal a lot of credit for that, what he was able to do on Thursday night. Russell Westbrook, he was inefficient on Thursday night, but yes, he had another triple-double, extending his single season and career franchise records with his 34th triple-double, 13 points, 17 assists, and 17 rebounds. Now, he did go just one of six on threes, just four 13 on twos, just two of four on free throws, did commit seven turnovers, and did ultimately foul out. But know this about Westbrook. In a fourth quarter that the Wizards won, 33-29, he had five assists versus no turnovers to go with six rebounds. So in a game in which he had seven turnovers, Westbrook in the fourth quarter, no turnovers, and he had five assists in that fourth quarter and six boards. He is now one triple-double shy of tying Oscar Robertson for the NBA record for career regular season triple-doubles. That was career regular season triple-double number 180 for Westbrook on Thursday night. Robertson has the record at 181. So that thing is going down and going down hard before the end of this regular season. Westbrook, though, with that triple-double on Thursday night, did surpass the big O for most combined career regular season and postseason triple-doubles. This is Westbrook's 190th career regular season or postseason triple-double. Robertson had 189 in his career. So you could argue Westbrook is already the king of the triple-doubles. Big game two on Thursday night for Howell Neto. You know, Neto's been starting, didn't do that much in the loss at the Bucks on Wednesday night, but Neto out there starting for an 11th consecutive game on Thursday night. Boy, was he good offensively. Five of seven on threes, finished with 25 points in the game. The Wizards also got some great performances off the bench. This has been a consistent theme with the Wizards lately, and nobody was better off the bench than Robin Lopez on Thursday night. Robin Lopez went 6 of 8 from the field, 12 of 14 on free throws. It was hack-a-robin by the Raptors as the game went on. Lopez finished the game with 24 points, 7 rebounds, 
and three blocks in just 23 minutes, 22 seconds off the bench. Lopez in a fourth quarter that the Wizards won 33-29, went six to six on free throws, had 10 points and six rebounds. Lopez in the overtime scored seven of the Wizards' 16 points, including going five of six on free throws. So Lopez over the fourth quarter period and overtime period, a combined 11 of 12 on free throws. He was so clutch from the line Lopez was in the game on Thursday night. Continue to be so efficient offensively. I mean, it is an old school style that Robin Lopez plays. It's, you know, 1980s jump hooks type stuff with Lopez in the paint, but it works. He's been one of the more efficient big men in the NBA throughout the season, offensively speaking, and a tremendous job by Lopez on Thursday night. Davies Bertans, three of eight on threes, 14 points, five rebounds, game best plus minus rating of plus 19 in 35 minutes off the bench. Garrison Matthews, two of three on threes, eight points in just 10 minutes, two seconds off the bench. Although Matthews almost blew it for the Wizards, 3.2 seconds left in overtime, went just one of two on free throws, giving the Wizards a two-point lead at 131-129 instead of a three-point lead at 132-129. But the Wizards did end up holding on for the win. Daniel Gafford, for once, did not have some monster stat line off the bench, although he did have three blocks in 15 minutes, two seconds as a reserve. As Brooks continued to start guys and then not play him much, Alex Len started for a 30th consecutive game, ended up playing for just 10 minutes, 47 seconds, even in an overtime game. Although it's not like he was that bad. 10 points, 4-4 shooting and 4 rebounds. That's pretty good in 10 minutes, 47 seconds. Anthony Gill started for a second consecutive game, but played for just 8 minutes, 52 seconds, had a game-worst plus-minus rating of minus 20. Not sure that old Gilly is going to be out there in the starting lineup moving forward, but we'll see. And again, with Brooks, it doesn't really matter who starts. It's who continues to play as the game goes on. This was not an easy game for the Wizards to win. This was not an easy spot that the Wizards were in, but they got the job done. You know, there was a toughness on display with the Wizards on Thursday night that we have so rarely seen from the Wizards over the years. Like that, as much as anything, is what stood out to me. Wizards win for a 14th time in 18 games, get to 31 and 36 on the season. And like I said, on the doorstep of clinching a spot in the play-in tournament. Wizards have five games left in the regular season. Next up, a big game in terms of the play-in tournament standings at the Indiana Pacers, Saturday night at seven. Again, the Wizards are just a half game behind the Pacers for ninth in the East. And then the Wizards have back-to-back games at the Atlanta Hawks, Monday night at 7.30 and Wednesday night at 7.30. You see, I did an entire Wizards segment without playing the Stephen A. Smith soundbite because the Wizards are becoming such a likable team. The damn Washington Wizards. Oh, we almost made it through the whole thing without playing that. Well, so much for that three-game sweep that the Nationals authored over the Miami Marlins last weekend. The Nats went from sweeping to getting swept. The Nats went from being the sweeper-er to the sweeper-e. A three-game sweep at the hands of the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. 6-1 loss on Tuesday night. 5-3 loss on Wednesday night. 3-2 loss on Thursday. The Nats now are 12-15 and on the season. Another frustrating offensive performance for the Nats on Thursday. You know, the Nets put guys on base, eight hits, five walks, certainly hit some balls hard, but ultimately just one for 12 with runners in scoring position. For the series, the Nets in this three-game sweep total just six runs, go just one for 21 with runners in scoring position. Yes, one hit over 21 at-bats with runners in scoring position. Nets got totally stymied by the Braves' three starting pitchers, who were not named Greg Maddox, 
Tom Glavin, and John Smoltz. The Braves' three starters in this series were Uaskar Inoa, Max Freed, and Drew Smiley. And understand, the Braves' starting pitching had been struggling big time coming into the series. This really, in a lot of ways, profiled as perhaps a true get-right series for the Nats offense, which had been getting righter over these previous recent series. And instead, you go right back to struggling in this series, and it ends up being a get-right series for the Braves pitching, not for the Nationals hitters in any reasonable way. Also, the Nats now are just 1-5 and against the Braves in this season. It's early. You got, what, 13 more games to go against Atlanta in the regular season. But that is a bad start to get off to against the three-time reigning defending National League East champion, Atlanta Braves. So once again, it was a Victor Robles appearance that stood out as much as anything in this game on Thursday. Robles, as you may recall, in the 5-3 loss on Wednesday night, a first pitch flyout to shallow left field with the bases loaded and two outs to end the Nats two-run eighth. On Thursday, the eighth inning struck again when it came to Robles. In this 3-2 loss, Robles struck out looking on a terrible third strike call by the home plate umpire Nick Marley with runners on first and second, two outs, and the Nats trailing 3-2 in the bottom of the eighth. The pitch was low. The pitch was out of the strike zone, so much so that the glove of the Braves catcher, Jeff Mathis, hit the dirt. Look, I know home plate umpires are going to miss ball strike calls. This, to me, is why you need an automated strike zone. You need robo-umps when it comes to balls and strikes. I'm not saying get rid of home plate umpires, but have an automated strike zone. Why subject batters, pitchers, to the variance of the home plate umpire strike zone or just the variance to the home plate umpire's accuracy when it comes to calling balls and strikes. It's not easy calling balls and strikes. Nobody's going to be perfect. We can achieve perfection with the automated strike zone. Let's go ahead and do it. Like, I just don't understand why baseball isn't doing it. But anyway, Robles, that was unfair. That was not strike three. That should have been ball four. Instead, Robles goes down with that strikeout in a big spot in that game on Thursday. Now, Robles did go one for three with a single and a walk, had a single in the bottom of the seventh, threw a two-out intentional walk in the bottom of the fourth inning. For the series, it ends up not being that bad of a series for Robles from a batting standpoint. He was a starting center fielder in all three games, went two and nine with two singles, two walks, but he struck out five times, and it's been a frustrating year with Robles in a lot of ways, including for the outs on the base paths, and another frustrating moment on Thursday, although again, I don't blame him for that. That was on the home plate umpire Nick Marley. There was more bad from this Nationals lineup. Josh Bell was out there as a number five batter, 0 for 3 with a walk, did draw one out full count, six pitch walk in the Nationals, one run fourth despite having been down in the count at 1.02, but Bell grounded out with runners on first and second and two outs in the bottom of the first inning. Josh Bell was a starting first baseman in games one and three in the series. He exits it with a batting average of 141 an on-base percentage of 222, a slugging percentage of 281. Just brutal. And as I pointed out with Josh Bell, he's hit some balls hard this season. But at some point, man, you got to start seeing the production, and you're just not seeing it this year. I mean, a 281 slugging percentage for Josh Bell, that is horrendous. Trey Turner had a rough game on Thursday, 0 for 5 with a strikeout. Did have the homer on Wednesday night, ultimately went 3 of 13 with the homer, two singles, and a walk in the series. Trey, the starting shortstop, number one batter in all three games. Yadiel Hernandez was back out there as a starter for the Nationals on Thursday. He was a number two batter, one for five with a single, a two-out full count single in the bottom of the third, but Hernandez had a big spot in which he did not deliver. Struck out with pinch runner Andrew Stevenson on second and went out in the bottom of the ninth with the Nats trailing 3-2. Hernandez starting right field during games one and three, just one for 10 
with a single. See, that's the thing. If you're going to start multiple games, you got to do better than one for 10 with a single. Hernandez overall has done a pretty good job this year, but this was not a good series for him. Kyle Schwarber on Thursday, he had a big hit, but he also had a big strikeout. So he was out there again, starting left fielder, number seven batter, Schwarber, a two-out RBI double in the bottom of the fourth on a one-two pitch. That was good to see. Leadoff full count, nine-pitch walk in the bottom of the seventh, despite having been down to that count at 1.12. That was good to see. But old Schwarby, he struck out on three swings and misses with runners on first and second and one out and what ended up being a mere one-run eighth inning for the Nationals. That's the thing. The Nationals this season have had so many innings in which the team is primed for a big inning, like, you know, a four-run inning, a five-run inning, and you only get one or two runs. And that eighth inning on Thursday was a classic case of that, where here you have Schwarber up there, runners on first and second, one out. This can be a big inning for you. And instead, he strikes out three swings and misses. That's it. You know, like, just like that, that plate appearance ended up being over. Schwarber in the series, starting left fielder in all three games, one for 10 with a double and a couple of walks. I mentioned Josh Bell's slash line. Kyle Schwarber's is not much better. Batting average of 187 on base percentage of 265, slugging percentage of 333. Now, like I said, the Nationals did get on base at at least a decent clip on Thursday. There were bright spots. Ryan Zimmerman, another big hit for him, a pinch leadoff double in the bottom of the ninth inning. So Zimmerman now on the season, 314 batting average, 352 on base percentage, 588 slugging percentage. What a job he's done over just 54 plate appearances on the season. It was another good game for Josh Harrison. He was back out there as a starting second baseman. He was a starting second baseman in games one and three in the series, starting right fielder in game two. Harrison, two for five with a double and a single, had a two-out single and a stolen base in the bottom of the first, a leadoff double in the Nationals' one-run eighth inning. Harrison now on the season, 329 batting average, 417 on base percentage, 466 slugging percentage. Another good game for Jan Gomes, too, who interestingly ended up starting at catcher in all three games in the series. Not often you see that anymore, that the same guy starts at catcher for you in all three games in a series, but Gomes did that, had a one-out RBI single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the eighth. Gomes in the series, four for 11 with a homer and three singles. Did a really nice job offensively. And Starling Castro was out there again as the Nationals' cleanup batter. That's an indictment of where the Nats are at offensively, that Castro is your cleanup batter. But he actually did a decent job in that role for a second straight game. Castro on Thursday, one for two with a single and two walks. He had a two-out full count, seven-pitch walk in the bottom of the first, leadoff single, bottom of the sixth, and a four-pitch walk in that Nationals one-run eighth inning. This off what he did in the 5-3 loss on Wednesday night, two-out five-pitch walk, bottom of the sixth, went-out double in the Nats two-run eighth despite having been down in the count at one point, one-two. But still, Castro should not be your cleanup batter. Like, like this in a lot of ways captures the Nationals and the poor roster construction to where you have the offensive problems that you have, that Castro is your cleanup batter. I mean, I know Juan Soto's been out, or at least he can't start. He's been hitting. He's been pinch hitting. Hasn't been succeeding doing that. Actually hit a ball hard on Thursday, but it ended up being caught by the left fielder. But Castro for the season is slugging 350. He has a 296 on base. I mean, both of those numbers are brutal. And yet he's your cleanup batter in back-to-back big games against the Atlanta Braves. Like that to me, as much as anything, highlights where the Nats are at with their roster and how flawed it is when it comes to this offense being good on the season. Uh, John Lester was the national starting pitcher on Thursday. So this is going to sound odd. I actually think Lester in some ways was better in this game than he was in his regular season debut, that 2-1 inning win over the Miami Marlins in Nationals Park last Friday night. If you remember that game, Lester 
five scoreless innings, which sounds great. And it was, but he was far from dominant. Just one strikeout, gave up five hits, two doubles and three singles, issued two intentional walks, had just one clean inning. Lester on Thursday did give up three runs in five innings, but he only gave up four hits, a double and three singles. Did issue two walks, not intentional walks. So that's true. But he had five strikeouts, five strikeouts in five innings, through 57 of his 85 pitches for strikes. I actually thought Lester looked pretty good for the most part. He tossed three scoreless innings, then gave up the three runs in the top of the fourth. Leadoff single by Ronald Acuna Jr., despite him having been down to the count at 1.02. Stolen base by Acuna, who then advanced the third on a throwing error by Gomes. A full count seven-pitch walk of Ozzy Albies, despite him having been down to the count at 1.02. First pitch RBI double by Marcelo Zuna, and then a two-out first pitch, two-run single by A. Ray Adrianza. So there were some put-away spots that Lester was unable to convert in that three-run fourth inning for the Braves on Thursday. Right, he had Acuna down 0-2, had Albies down 0-2. But overall, I didn't hate what we saw from Lester. Three runs in five innings, it doesn't sound as good as I thought Lester actually looked for a good chunk of his outing. And then there was the Nats bullpen which was outstanding for a second consecutive game. If you remember what went down in the 5-3 loss to the Braves on Wednesday night, three Nats relievers in that game combining for four perfect innings, including Kyle Finnegan tossing an immaculate sixth inning, three strikeouts on just nine pitches, just the fifth immaculate inning for the Nats franchise since it came to D.C. Well, three Nats relievers in this loss on Thursday combined for four perfect innings again. So back-to-back games, Three relievers combined for four perfect innings. Austin both faced five batters, recorded six outs over the sixth and seventh innings, dropped his ERA to 142. Boy, both, I tell you, it's really exciting with him. He may have found himself in this role. He's been so good as a reliever so far. Daniel Hudson looked good again, a perfect top of the eighth to drop his ERA to two. And Brad Hand, who's barely been pitching, uh, he tossed a perfect top of the ninth to keep his ERA at zero. You like that ERA? on the season so far. So very encouraging to see this with the bullpen. That's actually one of the pains of the national season so far. The one thing that's like never good for the Nationals early in a season is good this season, the bullpen, but everything else has had issues. You know, starting pitching has had problems. The offense has certainly had problems. The defense at times has been problematic, although overall the Nationals defense has been good. You got to be fair about this. Entering games on Thursday, the Nats were number one in the majors in defensive runs saved at 24. So for all of the little flaws we can point out with these games, and this guy didn't do this, and that guy did that, overall, the Nationals defensively this season haven't just been good, they've been elite. Now, we'll see if that holds up, okay? I have my doubts, but we'll see. And credit where credit's due. A Nationals team that on paper looked like it was going to be abysmal defensively, I certainly thought it was going to be abysmal defensively, so far has been really good. So I give the Nationals credit in that regard, but got to get the offense going. I mean, this just cannot continue. The Nats don't hit for power. They don't score runs early. You know, forget about not being good against good pitching. The Nationals are struggling against underwhelming pitching, and here you are. Nationals are 12 and 15 on the season. I mean, that is the good news. Nationals aren't buried by any means. Nobody's riding off the season. Nobody's saying you got to start, you know, a fire sale or anything like that, but the Nationals are 12 and 15. Nats do have by far the worst run differential in the National League East at minus 22. In fact, it is the second worst run differential in the National League. And to whatever extent this matters, and I don't think it matters much, but the Nationals technically are last in the NL East at 12 and 15, although just two and a half games behind the first place Philadelphia Phillies, who are 17 and 15. There's one other thing I want to note with the Nationals on Thursday, and that is This game was the 411th regular season game 
for Davey Martinez as Nats manager. He moved past Manny Acta to become the longest tenured manager for the Nats since the franchise came to D.C. That is not a small achievement because the Nationals for years had a revolving door at manager. Everyone used to mock Dan Snyder when he first became owner of the Washington football team and how often Washington would change head coaches. And that was true. First decade, you had a lot of that with the Donnie, right? You went from Norv Turner to Marty Schottenheimer to Steve Spurrier to Joe Gibbs to Jim Zorn to Mike Shanahan. And then things kind of calmed down. Shanahan was here for four seasons. Jay Gruden was here for five plus seasons. And hopefully Ron Rivera, aka Don Ron, is here for many, many years to come. But the Nationals really were the team in this area that fired coaches, that changed coaches left and right. In this case, changed managers left and right. The Nationals, since they came to D.C., have had as their managers, and I'll just name the full-time guys, Frank Robinson, Manny Acta, Jim Riggleman, Davey Johnson, Matt Williams, Dusty Baker, and now Davey. And this is Davey's fourth season as Nats manager, and it certainly feels like he's going to be here for a while. You know, the 2018 first season for him as manager did not go well. You had a lot of people calling for him to be fired. I never said that, not one time. I thought a lot of the overreaction to Davey that year was ridiculous, including the refusal to look at the specifics of that season and why the Nationals did poorly. Of course, Davey shut everybody up with what happened in 2019. Davey's postseason managing was masterful. The way Davey handled the Nats having a bad bullpen that October can never be forgotten. The aggressive usage of starters as relievers, the shrinking of the bullpen down to essentially two guys in Sean Doolittle and Daniel Hudson. Davey, from a tactical standpoint, and that Nationals run to the World Series title in 2019 was incredible. So much better than what we had seen from Dusty Baker the previous two times the Nats were in the postseason. So much better than what we saw from Matt Williams in his lone time in the postseason with the Nationals in 2014. And here's another thing with Davey, and I'm always kind of reluctant to go down this path because we don't know these people personally, but every indication is that Davey Martinez is a good man, a nice man, a genuine man. You know, there was a recent Zoom press conference at which Davey got really emotional, started crying over the people who've died from COVID-19, how Davey had had family members who dealt with this, and he, he broke down. It was a genuine moment, and it came off that way. It came off as authentic. It didn't come off as like, you know, phony or virtue signaling or anything like that. Like, there's a reason I think that Davey's players really seem to like him. There's a reason I think that in 2018, when things did not go so well, the team never turned on Davey because the team likes Davey. The players like Davey. And I think that's reflected in the success that Davey has had here. So a salute to Davey for achieving this. You know, it says a lot about the Nationals that the longest tenured manager had been a guy from the dark days. Again, Manny Acta. Like the Nationals have been a good team since the 2012 season. Not a single one of those managers had been the longest tenured manager for the Nats, even though the team had had a good bit of success beginning with that 2012 season. What does that tell you about the revolving door that had been at manager for the Nats. Next up for the Nats, three-game series at the New York Yankees. Yankees now are 16-15 and 15 off a 7-4 loss at home to the Houston Astros on Thursday, though that loss... We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Snap the Yankees' five-game winning streak. So New York, off a rough start to its season, has been better. Game one, Friday night, 7.05, Patrick Corbin versus Jamison Tyone. Hopefully, Corbin has finally settled down because it is frightening to think about if old Corby gets back to struggling, what could happen against that Yankees lineup with the likes of Aaron Judge and John Carlos Stanton and DJ LeMahieu and Gio Urshela in Yankee Stadium, the damage that could be inflicted on Corbin on Friday night. Game two, Saturday afternoon, 105, Max Scherzer versus Corey Kluber. And game three, Sunday afternoon, 105, Joe Ross versus Domingo Herman. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Thank you for a great last week plus. Lots of great reaction to and download numbers for the Washington football team draft-oriented shows. I appreciate that. The weekend, always a good time to catch up on anything that you missed. I've had two prominent national NFL draft analysts on the pod this week, breaking down every pick that Washington made. Thor Nystrom of NBC Sports Edge, he joined me for episode 54. Tony Pauline of Pro Football Network, he joined me for episode 56. I've spoken with various assistant coaches who played major roles in the development of some of the guys who Washington drafted, Kentucky co-defensive coordinator and inside linebackers coach John Sumrall with great insight on Jamin Davis. In episode 55, North Carolina receivers coach Lonnie Galloway with an in-depth look at Deyami Brown in episode 57. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. For the fans. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.